This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to HITS Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have one of my uh, business partners on again, uh, Jeff Barrett. So uh, last episode it was Jeff and I and some other instructors. We were in uh, Georgia, so hopefully you guys all got to hear that episode, uh, talking some training stuff. And then uh, last week Jeff put out an email that uh, he put together, sent out on our email list. So if uh, you don't get our emails, check out our website at uh, hitsk9.net. You can sign up to get our emails, and that gives you a lot of information about our seminars and what we have going on and then uh in a, a pretty regular uh thing jeff will send out uh, articles and stuff th- things that are going on in the industry and just some ways to improve the industry so kind of an article type format for this email and uh, he put this out last week and i thought it was uh it's got so many good points to it i thought it'd be really good to, to bring him on so uh, how are you doing today jeff i'm doing pretty good thanks for asking man so the email you wrote, um, it's basically, you titled it, when left to their own devices, people will get up to two things, not much and no good, and then six traits of a, of failure in the canine unit. So what kind of motivated you to put this article together? You know, it just seems like in our industry, there's always something negative going on, and I just wanted to highlight and remind some uh, folks out there that these things are fixable. Uh, they're not permanent, but uh, we do just have to be remindful of these things that are happening and uh, take action to fix them. A lot of times it's just things that we can do on our own. Uh, and then sometimes it's administratively uh, fixable. And and basically like not, not try and hide your, your faults. And I, I guess we could even go back to, you know, I know we would have 40 something teams in Georgia and we had a great time, but there was a few, you know, I think one example where uh, we had a, a very, very good decoy who was helping uh, show the dogs that they could work through getting sprayed with water. And I was kind of surprised at how many guys left their dogs in the car and didn't want to challenge their dog. And not, not one dog was going to lose, but I think sometimes we get in the, the habit of, you know, we want to train and work on what we're good at and uh, kind of avoid the problems. Is that kind of what you were thinking on this? Yeah, that was that was really the direction I was going in a lot of this stuff. And if you read through those bullet points, they really kind of all tie together at some point. But, um, you know, when we talk about hiding our, our problems and working on the good stuff, that's so common in our industry to do that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we ride those things out. And then when they're exposed, it embarrasses us. We always have our egos on our sleeve and really we just our egos live and die by the performance of our dogs and you know it just makes us look bad but anytime as you know when we teach a class we always try to encourage the guys just to put their egos on yeah. the shelf we're all there to learn and uh, we we look for those failures so that we can expose them address them and hopefully uh, find a little bit of success and give you a pathway to continue to improve in whatever it is. You saw a lot of different um, weaknesses and some of the confidence and then uh, just in a couple of uh, different exercises, we were able to bring out yeah. the confidence in the dogs and people like to see that. They, they're they encouraged by uh 
progress. Exactly. So these little classes that we put on really help that. Yeah, exactly. So let's go through these six traits, and uh, we'll just go through them one by one. Number one, you put handlers who blame blame others for their failures. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, isn't that so common? I see it all the time. And even if it's subtle, um, they'll just say, well, you know, I have to listen to what I'm being told by my train. Or, you know, I know that's a problem, but this is what I was told to do, or this is why this happens, and it's never their fault. And it they just seem to be stagnant sometimes with uh, their performance once they they leave uh, a structured training site, you know, be it with their own department or yeah. with their dedicated trainers. And sometimes they are told, you know, don't screw around and do anything outside our bubble. You know, don't do anything yeah. that we aren't watching or helping with. But uh, much of the time when they fail, it's usually they're they're blaming the dog. The dog sucks or their training wasn't up to par. Uh, it's just a plethora of things. What, yeah. Whatever occurs, it's usually not their fault. But yeah. uh, in the end, they're ultimately responsible for the performance of their dog. Exactly. And so, you know, really that that's a failure traits so you know we want to watch out for those and we see it all the time yeah and they almost become accepting of it because again like you say it's not their fault so it is what it is it's not my fault but i think any professional dog handler you know if you know you have a fault like that even if you're in and that's a common situation you and i both see that a lot of of trainers and that's a whole topic for another podcast about trainers who don't want you to train with other trainers and you know that kind of stuff but even if you're in that situation then go back to that trainer and say xyz is my problem you don't want me to train with someone else so let's fix it together and and address it instead of just using that as a crutch for your own deficiency right and a lot of times we i mean if you're a, a handler who's motivated to try and solve a problem and I always was that type. I wanted to know how I could fix this. Even if I thought of a a genetic problem, I wanted to see what I could do to at least bring the dog's performance up to an acceptable level that I could work. And so I was always looking for those answers from anybody that I could find them through, you know, so I never wanted to hide them. And, uh, yeah, plenty of my dogs have embarrassed me through their performances, but I can promise you that, the next failure wasn't the same one. Yeah. It was something different. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's that old saying, we never did that before. <laughs> well, that would be the thing that I worked on until we got that one right and moved on. But, yeah. Uh, I, those things is, you know, or to blame others, it's just a failure. Yeah, exactly. So the number two, you put uh, a handler who doesn't learn from his mistakes. Yeah. You see that a lot in guys who, are heavy-handed folks uh, who work the edge of the envelope on the legal side, on the deployment side. They're the first to want to deploy the dog, and I understand that. I, I'm I'm an advocate for using a patrol dog as it should be used, but if you're working that edge and maybe you're just barely working within the, the framework of the rules or the policies, it's going to come back to you, and you're not listening, you're not learning, you're not watching the world around you and and seeing what the industry is is moving toward yeah. or actions that's being taken you might be the problem if you're always in internal affairs uh, you have a, a seat with your name on it up there 
you might be the problem. Yeah. So, you know, they're not, they're not learning from their mistakes. They're kind of bullheaded and they're just yeah. going to address the way they've always done it. Uh, no matter how many times they, they may get that second, third or fourth chance to try and correct themselves. And, you know, you and I are, are kind of fortunate to have done this for, you know, several decades that, you know, when we started those guys, you know, we always had the guys like that, that, you know, were kind of on that edge and I, I would be guilty of probably being that myself when I was a new handler. Um, but that, that line has shifted and it's shifted a lot in the last few years. And, you know, so if you're on the old line, you're, you're definitely in trouble. And I know, uh, you know, talking about those scenarios, um, when I started, uh, you too, I think, uh, you know, mostly we talked a lot about civil liability and we talked about, you know, a couple of, you know, very, um, unusual cases when officers were criminally charged didn't happen that often, but we talked a lot about civil liability and now, I mean, you're seeing it, I'm seeing it. We're seeing cops getting indicted right and left. I mean, these people want to put cops in prison. It's not, it's not like a a crazy thought or, you know, you're just paranoid, you know, it's, they really do. They would be a feather in their cap to some of these, you know, George Soros DAs to put a cop in prison and they're all over the place, you know, and, and, you know, all these different DAs and politicians. So those people who are on that line really need to, to check themselves. And I think the handlers in the unit need to kind of, you know, be their brother's keeper and, and try to kind of rein everybody in a little bit and, and look what that line is. And, and that, that gray area line is, is very, very thin right now, it seems like. And I know a lot of agencies who are going to um, a debrief as a unit after uh, every bite, once they get to a training day, if there's been a bite or two, if the unit's large enough to to have that many, you know, uh, between the training days, the formal training days where everyone gets together and they debrief those things. And at least some point in that debrief, you know, somebody should say the old adage of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah. You know, yeah. so. If you live by that, and, and it just takes a second to let that absorb, what other opportunities can we take to end this conflict besides the dog bite? Maybe the dog bite's the right thing, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, and that could be worked into, you know, we talk a lot about decision-making scenario training, and, and that needs to be part of those, to, to have the, the handler in a situation where he says, in the middle of training, all right, this isn't a dog deal anymore. I'm going to do this and this. Yeah that's, exactly. yeah, yeah, that's very important. Number three, you put uh, handlers who cannot apply training techniques. And this is, I think this is, this could be a whole podcast in its own, but I think it's a, a very pervasive thing that, that you and I both see. And it's, uh, I think some people, I, I think it could be on, uh, you know, we'll just see what your thoughts are. But I, might, I often think that sometimes it's because the people they're trained by don't understand the techniques themselves. So they can do the, the numbers of ABC and the numbers one, two, three, do, th- do these things and the dog should do this. And when it doesn't, they don't know how to fix it. They don't know how to explain to the handler or some handlers just don't get the overall concept. Is that kind of what you were looking at? Yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And, you know, I spoke just a little bit in that caption in the email, uh, conversely, where the handlers can apply the training techniques because they, they dance with two left feet all the time yeah. and they just never seem to get it right. Uh, conversely to that is that they can apply the techniques quite well, but they simply don't understand why these techniques uh, work 
and how they apply to the learning theory. So if someone were to ever ask them, why do you do it that way? They may not even have the answer Yeah, because they don't understand that piece of it as well. And I don't know really how you flesh that out in an interview. We were lucky uh, in my agency that we had 90 days to have people around so you could kind of do a lot of training with them, but they didn't put a leash in their hand. And then sometimes when they actually had a leash in their hand, things changed. So I'm kind of a big advocate. I've talked to some agencies now that, uh, you know, they'll have a, a pretty social dog that, uh, you know, patrol dog that's pretty social that any of us, you know, that are experienced that knows the dog could easily go get the dog out of the car, put a leash on him, walk him down range, give him some bites, walk him around, give him a correction and stuff. I, you know, if you have a dog like that in your training group, I think it's a great way to, to, you know, put some of these candidates out there and, and have them actually put a leash in their hand and just see, you know, you mentioned like a fear of the dog is sometimes common in these situations. Just see how comfortable they are doing that and see how much, you know, I don't expect it to be good, but I expect there to be, have a, a level of familiarity and comfort, you know, by, by being able to have the leash in their hand and, and work in the dog. Yeah. A lot of times you just simply don't know the personality of the, the guys and girls that are coming into the unit until you have spent time. So that's a, I think probably a pretty unique uh, perspective that your department had on uh, putting new people into the unit was to, you know, from that 90 days of exposure so you could see who was, they are. First. Yeah. It was a great, it was a great program. Um, I think it's, they backed it down a little bit because of staffing. I think it's more like a two months, but when it was 90 days, um, guys can't BS you for a full 90 days. So, you know, if they come out once a week, you get their best behavior, but in 90 days, you get to see people, you know, make sure they come to work every day, make sure they come to call outs, make sure they're, they're training hard on the training days and getting along with everybody. It was, it, to me, it was an outstanding program and it wasn't just for, for canine, it was for SWAT and detectives and everywhere you had to go, you had to go and prove yourself. And, uh, they've kind of gotten away from it a little bit, but it, it worked well. I kind of expounded on this particular one where the handlers can't apply the training techniques uh, into fear of the dog. And they usually manifest into um, problems with releasing toys, problems mm-hmm. with, with the bite, um, anything behavioral that there might be a conflict. The dog senses that win and pretty soon just starts taking over everything because the handler doesn't want to push the edge of that, uh, that envelope, so to speak in controlling that dog. And so the timing gets off, the dog builds more confidence that he's leading the pack there between him and the handler. And basically it's, it's, it's just a fear, you know, a fear of the dog and the dog's dominating this whole thing. Yeah. So he, he doesn't know when to apply a correction, how much to apply. So he annoys the dog with a little bit of correction because if he, he feels like if he does too much, the dog's going to come yep. up the lead. And so he doesn't do his, doesn't do enough to resolve it. And then that frustrates the hell out of the dog. Yeah. And then the dog's willing to fight. Yep. So it just, it snowballs into something that it turns into just bad stuff. And that's one of those things that, you know, if, if you're, I mean, we've all seen it, the, and it seems like the, the guys who struggle, especially with that kind of stuff, they're always like, you know, the, the nicest, you know, guys or girls, and you really want to help them, but it's, the job's not for everybody. And, you know, if you see that early on, then it might be a, 
time to, to say, you know what, this guy's is not going to work out here. It's not the right spot for him because I've had very, very little success getting handlers over that hump. I don't know if you have, and if you have, you know, what did you do to, to you know, I've, I've muzzled dogs and worked them myself and given dogs hard corrections in front of them to, you know, the same dog, take their dog and work them and show them, look, this dog will accept the correction. And he, he actually looks happier when he understands the, the, the command and, and what to do without nagging him. And then you turn and give the leash back. And then that, that same fear is still there. Yeah. Every now and then you have the opportunity to, to, change the dogs with the handlers and if you've got that personality to, uh, in a handler that's a heavy handler a heavy-handed handler and you can give him that stronger dog to work yeah. it works out yeah whereas if you've got the heavy-handed handler with a softer dog uh, usually that winds up being a conflict in itself because yep. the dog doesn't work for a person like that yeah so if you have that softer handler who's not willing to, to get into that confrontation and you can find that personality in the dog and you can make that change, then it usually will work out. I've had that opportunity a couple of times. And I actually had it uh, one time in uh, labs yeah, where one pretty aggressive and the other one was passive and had a big handler, big strong guy, but he simply could not apply a correction to this dog and it was, you know, willing to fight yeah. a boy, a little <laughs> lab. And the other one was just as meek and mild as it could be. And I switched handers and it worked out perfect. Huh. Yeah. I mean, when you can do that. Uh, so on a side note there, uh, just to, not to go too far down the rabbit hole, when you're selecting a dog, do you try to match that dog with that personality? Yeah. And that's, again, we go back to having spent time with a handler yeah. and knowing who is. Um, if you know that that person is more likely to to take control of a, a heavy uh, or a strong dog by heavy hand, then you definitely want to make that choice in your dog. Yeah. But if you don't know them, I usually err on the side of caution and get that dog that's not quite as bold. And hopefully the handlers can meter himself. Yeah. But, you know, you don't get that opportunity and, Sometimes you only find that out in yeah. weeks and months coming. It's yeah, and I think I think that's something I learned. I grew as a trainer. I think I used to always think I want to take the baddest ass dog I could find at the kennel, and my attitude was that handler's got to step up. But really, our job is to put good, solid teams on the street. And some people can't handle dogs like that. You get them the right dog, and that dog searches just as well. And and finds yep. people and does everything without. So I think sometimes, and I'll, I'll say I was a little bit guilty as a new trainer. I think sometimes we live a little bit vicariously. I think I wanted to have a whole unit of these real strong, hard-headed dogs, the ones that I like, that I've right. had some success with, but not everybody does. And I think, uh, you know, I, I know I know I was guilty of that about you know trying to to populate my unit with the wrong dogs sometimes for the wrong reason. Yep, that's exactly right. So moving on, uh, number four, you have lack of administrative support. Let's talk about that for a little bit. That's a that also could be a whole podcast because that's not an uncommon thing. Yeah, it really is an uncommon thing. I, I've seen it run the gamut, and I've been very fortunate uh, in my career to have such great support from uh, the administrators and uh, that 
it seemed like throughout the years that uh, our canine guys would get promoted and uh, move their way up and always retained a little bit of control over the unit as they moved up. So we always had great support, um, even to the point of being accused of having a silver spoon in our mouth when we started asking for more. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, it was true. We, we, uh, I, I think we did have a silver spoon in our mouth. And, of course, we always want more. But um, for the things that we were given and the support that we were given, um, it was a very good setting. But I've seen across the country and over the years that I've traveled and taught, you know, just what a, a morale buster it can be when these guys are out here and they have the motivation to do it and nobody backs them, you know, yeah. paying out of their own pocket to come to class and nobody really cares. It's almost expected yeah. of them to do that sort of thing. And that's the, that's the guys that you wish you had in your unit because they yeah. are that motivated yeah. to do that and take their own time and spend their own money to buy the equipment that they need because the department won't buy it saying that they don't have the money, you know, because it's not in the budget. But, you know, when you start uh, or you, you start a unit and you're not really behind it, it's almost one of those things that uh, you want to, the ability to say that you have a canine unit. Yeah. But you really care whether or not you do as an administrator. Uh, and it shows internally uh, by the support that you give them. Yeah. So, you know, it, yeah. it really does water things down yeah. for the guy. And it just frustrates the hell out of them. Yeah, we see that a lot. Like I know a lot of smaller agencies, they can't have a dedicated canine sergeant. So it's a, a guy who oversees the canine unit, but also oversees, you know, traffic and school resource officers or whatever, or patrol shift or whatever. But right. even those, I mean, you got to find someone who's got some interest in, in canine. It's probably the, one of the highest liability positions in the department. And, um, I know I see it routinely. I'm sure you do too, where, you know, like I'll go out of town and, and teach a class and I'll be there for three days working our butts off with, and the, the agency that hosts me and, you know, I've got several of their dogs there and stuff. And I don't see the, the canine sergeant a single time. They're just disinterested in, in even, you know, like a three day class and someone from out of town that they've paid for. It just kind of shows you that, that lack of, uh, you know, interest at all. Yeah, and if you look at really what the highest liability units in the department is, is your field training program and the canine unit. Yeah. Because everything's going to go back to training when you get sued, and they're always going to look at the field training program. And then, of course, the same applies for the canine unit when you're biting people. Yeah, and I think if you had a field training sergeant who oversaw that program, that never once went to any of the field training meetings, never asked about any of the recruits that were going through training, never met with the TOs, never, you know, didn't care at all about the program he was overseeing, that would be addressed immediately. And yet you flip that into train, you know, trade recruits to dogs and, and TOs to handlers. And we see that, I mean, I, I see that all over the place where they, they just have, they just expect the, the handlers to go out and do their own thing. And, and a cool part of our industry is that, you know, you can go, we'll go to, like in Georgia, I don't know how many supervisors we had there, but we had 40 teams there and nobody screws around. Everybody's there to, to work and have fun and do their job. And we don't need to be yeah. told what to do, but I think supervisors take that to the extreme sometimes. Yeah, that's exactly right. I saw even, uh, there's an agency I know of that the, the canine supervisor normally would have a canine designation. And 
um, because he was so disinterested in everything about canine, took a different radio designation and was like, because he didn't want to be a canine designation on the radio. What do you think that tells the handlers, you know, going all the way down the leash as to, to what yeah. their support is? You know, it was it was pretty extreme. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then going right into that and kind of ties in, uh, number five, you have negligent supervision. Oh, negligent supervision is, it, it does, it ties directly into the lack of administrative support. And you touched on it about the supervisors who are really just the paper pushers, the the guys who oversee all the paperwork that come in and process the logs and your days off and stuff. Administratively, he's just there for you to go to when you have an issue to talk about, but he has uh, little to no knowledge about the canine unit. And even if he does, if he's not a, a good supervisor in a canine unit, that can be just such a detriment to the unit as well. But, you know, good quality leadership in the unit, it can really bring a balance to the whole unit. And uh, it just, it, it, it brings a sense of unity to the unit as well when you're, supervisors involved even if he doesn't or even if he hasn't worked a dog yeah or done a dog um his interest um can be felt and seen by the guys that work for him yeah and even when you get i I see that a lot where supervisors have not worked a dog and that's fine but if they're you know in a lot of agencies the supervisor doesn't work a dog so they'll probably never work one but they're the supervisor so i don't know why those guys can't learn to be good decoys can't go to you know some uh, you know attend the training learn some of the dog psychology learn some of the the techniques and and why we're doing things not that they're going to be out there training the dogs but at least they have an understanding of what we do and why we do it and then if you go to that supervisor as a trainer and you're explaining a problem at least you can have an intelligent conversation with them and you know they're out there watching the dogs perform and the handlers you know but that's that's uh I mean, and and they're they're trying to learn just as much from that class as yeah. the handlers. They yeah. want to know and understand what it is that's happening out there and why. And you know, these are the same guys that call me looking for training classes, the advanced classes that we put on um, for their for their guys. Yeah, here's a supervisor who doesn't work a dog, but he's listened to the podcast. He gets the email blast and. Uh, and has been to hits before yeah. and calling us, asking us for dates on, uh, advanced classes, um, for his guys. He yeah. doesn't work at all, but he wants that training for them. And, and the same goes with pack track. They, you know, they've heard about pack track. They want to, to have the webinar so they can understand it. And he says, I'll have a discussion with them and we'll all talk about the pros and cons yeah. of the training of the record keeping system and we'll get back with you and i just think that's you know that's what we're looking for uh in a in a leader for that canine unit not even working the dog but he takes that time and effort to do that yep and then when that leader is asked questions by you know his boss or his chief he can you know correctly you know explain you know at least the mission of the canine unit and and know which handler to go to you know he's the expert in the detection he's the expert in patrol chief i'll bring him up here and we'll all talk together and you know we'll work through it you know i'm not the expert in the training part of it but i oversee it and and the, it goes right back to you know number four your lack of administrative support 
when you get the supervisor who isn't the negligent supervisor, the morale's better too. I mean, nobody wants to have a, a micromanager, but I think every one of us that has been a handler, you know, enjoys it when we have a, a leader who is there and interested and kind of steering the ship for, for everybody because, you know, I never tried to promote because I didn't want to do that, but somebody needs to to be the, yeah. the, the person who steers everything. Yeah, sometimes you may think that it's micromanaging, but at least, you know, they're involved and they're yeah. interested um, in what you're doing. You know, they they are holding you accountable to do the right things. And, you know, just like the, the opening statement was, is that, you know, left to their own devices, people get up to two things, not much and no good. So if we're left without that proper supervision or an administrative uh, group that cares nothing about us, we feel like we're left alone. Eventually, you know, that motivation is going to wane. Yeah. We're going to be doing the right things out there. Yep. So. And you're going to have a unit that divides. A couple of guys who want to do one thing, a couple of guys who want to train a different way or deploy a different way, and everybody's on their own. And then you don't really have a canine unit. You have, you know, eight, nine, ten individual handlers all doing their I'm own all, stuff. Yeah, I've seen it so much. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it even with our unit uh, at one point. Uh, we were decentralized where uh, all the dogs were just assigned to different squads uh, and never to uh, a specialty uh, yeah. unit. And so everybody answered. And it's still somewhat like that where they're assigned to the squads, but at least they do have a structured chain of command now to where they answer to a, a canine sergeant. But as soon as you start breaking those guys up and assigning them to different sarge- sergeants and lieutenants, you don't have a canine unit yeah. anymore. Yeah. You know, and then you have that, a bunch of guys, dogs doing their own thing. Then that competitive nature going back to number one about not, you know, not, it's not my fault. Hey, I don't get to train with anybody. I'm, I'm in this squad and those guys in squad three get to train more than I do. So my dog right. sucks and I don't have to worry about it. And, you know, there's yeah. there, all these different bullet points. That's why I liked this email so much is I know you put a lot of thought into it and they they all tie in together and it's all that same yeah. theme that, you know, we, we see a lot and it's all, you know, if you're listening to this and you're shaking your head like, yeah, I'm in that situation, you know, there's there's fixes and hopefully, you know, you're hearing some of the fixes that we're throwing out. So and then Yeah, not all laws, for sure. Yeah. So they're easy fixes. Yeah. And then number six, uh failure to train. You know, and that's again that yeah. that could be a whole podcast, but it definitely yeah. ties in with all of this. So uh Yeah, it just goes right back to to number one where you're blaming, you know, everybody else for your failure failures when on the night shift and you say well i don't have anybody to lay me tracks i don't have anybody to catch my dog when i'm doing bike um those are perfect examples failure to train you're just making excuses you know surely there's got to be some other ways that you can get this done if you want it bad enough you'll get it done yeah but you know but the failure to train that's that's such a gimme i mean if you're not doing the right training if you're not doing any training you're not applying yourself and there's nobody to see it. That's negligent supervision, negligent retention. And again, a lack of administrative support. Nobody's overseeing that. Yep. Yeah. You know, you get the subpoena to come down and make testimony on what you've got and you're asked for the records and you're scrambling to make, make up the time that you haven't done it for the last three months. Yeah. And that could be a problem as well. So absolutely, and we see, and you know, the, the one of the big excuses, and 
you know, we hear it all the time as well. I only have, you know, 10 guys in my unit, so I don't have any time, you know, other than, you know, every other week I get a train. You know, I always ask them, have you ever gone out to like a fenced yard, put a muzzle on your dog and a soccer ball and kicked it around and enforced obedience, you know, when the dog wants to chase the ball? And No, I, I don't do that. Well, you know, there's there's some high-level obedience you can do just on your own. So there's things you can do, yeah. even if it's not a training day, and you can you can always get better. And, of course, resourcing. If you don't know, reach out to us. We'll give you some ideals. Uh, that's a perfect one, you know, muzzling the dog, kicking the ball around, controlling the dog. But reaching out to us, reaching out to anyone, just for some training ideals that might help you while training alone yeah exactly and you also put in your your paragraph here you know if you're a five-year handler and you haven't advanced your skills then you know that goes back to number one you're you know you're not you're not pushing yourself because there's resources out there you know even the podcast or articles you name it you can you can keep pushing and and uh find other other uh you know training techniques that you can start applying and and get better and better because you're your basic canine school is exactly that. It's basic. And if you've been a handler five years, you should be well-versed in a lot of things besides what you learned that very first class. Yeah, I see that so often too, especially with the accelerated classes where it's not really a, a training school. You're pretty much just going through a couple of weeks of, of handling skills to get acclimated to this dog who's already been trained for you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, maybe two to four weeks but it's not enough, you yeah. know, and if, if you never go to anything after that, um, your skill level is not going to change. Exactly. And, and you have to want to do that because, you know, now we go back to, you know, some of the, if you don't have a lot of support and you don't have uh, supervisors involved, you have to, you have to go to them and say, here's a class. I want to go to this. You know, here's, I found all the information. What do I need to go to it? You know, not, not many of us have worked for supervisors who will dig out a class and do all the paperwork and call you in and say, hey, on these dates, you're getting on a plane and flying to another state to go to this the HITS conference. Usually it's got to be initiated by the handlers themselves. Yeah, and I you know, I get it. Not everyone's self-motivated to do these things, but then it falls back to you know, the right supervision. Yep. You know, what has this handler or these guys done lately? Yeah. You know, what trained for and where are they at in their skill levels? Yeah, why, why do I have one guy who's got 15 certificates in his file and he's been here for four years and an eight-year handler who's got no certificates? You know, start looking at those things. Yeah, hey, you know, you should be able to pull your dog out at any given time and, and do a minimum certification. Whatever your certification is, it's just the minimum certification. It yep. should just be an everyday occurrence. Yep. You shouldn't sweat, didn't have to prepare for it. It should be easy. Exactly. Exactly. But there's a lot of guys that stress out over, you know, preparing for that. And yep. That's not good. No, so. I agree. So I think these are all uh, good things just to talk about, just uh, food for thought. And, uh, you know, we'll talk a little bit about uh, we got hits coming up in Scottsdale, uh, August 15th to the 18th. Um, we've got uh, quite a few instructors. Uh, we're up to close to 100 vendors. We've got classes on all these types of subjects, plus uh, – you know, you name it, uh, we've got it. So whether you're a single purpose, you know, detection dog handler, bomb dog, narcotics, we, you'll stay busy those three days. If you're a patrol dog handler, you'll stay busy. We have classes 
five classes at a time. So you pick, you pick and choose whatever classes you want to go to. And we really spend a lot of time balancing out the schedule to make sure that no matter what your discipline is, that you're going to be able to, to find stuff to do every single day. And then, uh, you know, we got all the instructors are roaming around in the vendor hall. We do a lot of social times. You have all of, uh, you know, myself, Jeff here, then you have Andy Weinman and Ted Dallas. You'll see us around there. So the networking is a big part of, of hits too. you know, spend some time in between classes, uh, we do snacks and stuff in the vendor hall and meet other people, go talk to all the instructors. And there's there's a lot of opportunities to learn outside the classroom as well as inside the classroom. So, uh, Jeff, you do the registrations. I think they're coming in pretty steady now. Yeah, we've got several hundred already uh, signed up. Uh, plenty, of, plenty of room left, though. So if you're, you're listening oh, yeah. to this, we, we can always fit everybody in. We make sure of that. Yeah, last year we had 1,200 students. Yeah. Uh, so- 1600 people counting the vendors and structures and everything but uh it was our largest and i think the vendor hall is even bigger this year i think we have more vendors this year than ever so it'll be a great uh, event it's going to be in in uh, scottsdale which is a phoenix suburb it's in august it's gonna be hot of course but it's a beautiful hotel they've got uh, all kinds of stuff to do to keep it cool outside if you want to go outside or you stay in the air-conditioned hotel and, and enjoy it there so it's going to be a great event. I'm sure looking forward to it every year. Um, I just, I, I can't believe that we get a, to do this event. We're, we're pretty fortunate as a, a business here that the four of us get to kind of put this together and meet all these handlers and stuff. So I appreciate the time, uh, Jeff, uh, jumping on here. And I, I like the article you wrote. So thanks for coming on and talking about it a little bit more. Thanks. I appreciate that. And uh, don't forget the Smart Dog Conference. Yep. <laughs> Uh, Come on. Want, want to speak about smart. that for a minute? Yeah, the before hits yeah. this year, we're doing a smart dog. The smart dog training conference, and that's for the non-law enforcement guys who want to come. I think the two uh, focus topics this year will be uh, odor work, scent nose work uh, for all the folks who work that, and then uh, some topics in search and rescue. So that'll be two days prior. Uh, registration day will be August. Well, same hotel, same vendor halls, same uh, classrooms, uh, but it's just for the non-law enforcement side of things. So if you're interested, if you do sports, if you do working dogs, if you do search and rescue, then this would be a conference that you definitely want to attend. Yeah, I'm glad you thought I mentioned that. Um, that We've come up with a smart dog because every year we have lots and lots of people who want to come to HITS, but HITS is a law enforcement seminar, and we, we keep it law enforcement that, um, for lots of reasons. The, the people attending it uh, kind of prefer it to be law enforcement only. A lot of the instructors want to know they they're, have law enforcement only in the class. So uh, we've had a lot of people that, you know, very qualified people that are, want to train dogs and do stuff that is, is in similar fashion, but just not law enforcement. So we're trying to put together a venue for, for all those people that are, are also interested in, in dog training. So that's mysmartdog.net for the information on that, mysmartdog.net. Check that out. And then, of course, HITS is uh, hitscanine.net. And if you want to reach either me or Jeff, my email is jeff at hitscanine.net and uh, jeff.barrett at hitscanine.net so two Jeffs uh, but send it to either one and we'll make sure that the right Jeff gets it so thanks again Jeff appreciate it alright thank you